We're in a series on the implications of the Great Tribulation, and this has led us to a uh, pretty extensive mini-series on the problem of evil. That's how we've ended up here with all of these kinds of things. Uh, and we've spent a lot of time discussing the fact that people have been the victims of other people's mistreatment. For instance, we looked at Joseph, and we looked at the true victim, uh, Naaman's servant girl, those kind of things. And some uh, people in the church and watching have been abused and cheated on, manipulated, ripped off, and, and lied to. And last week, we looked at the flip side of this and acknowledged that none of us is perfect, and all of us have hurt at least someone. Um, it, it, there's a flip side. We, we call it the, the, the shoe, in fact, is on the other foot. So we, we studied the story of Jacob and Esau with Jacob stealing Esau's blessing and his birthright. And Jacob's treachery was impressive. So to make sure that we didn't pass off Jacob's deceit as irrelevant to us, just because it was so treacherous, um, we dealt with the, this in one of the applications and here's your blank, the only blank from last week, but this is, was kind of uh, one of the take-home messages from last week. Just because our mistreatment or deception isn't that impressive, there's your first blank, just because our mistreatment or deception isn't that impressive, as impressive as Jacob's, doesn't mean that we can avoid having to set things right. But tonight, I want to turn to the flip side of last week's major points. While it's true that all of us have mistreated others, it's also true that we have all been mistreated ourselves. And since this is the case, a series on the problem of evil shouldn't be, wouldn't be complete without taking a serious look at the issues surrounding forgiveness. All of us need to be forgiven, but also all of us have people that we need to forgive. And forgiving those who hurt us is one of the most painful things that we will ever do. It's hard. It's tough. So when you bring up the topic of forgiveness, a whole bunch of things come up. In fact, we'll cover it this week and next week. For some, thinking about the issue of forgiveness immediately creates a sense of guilt. For others, it may bring up painful memories that elicit, elicit powerful emotions. The very fact that we're looking at this issue might remind you personally of a nightmare that you've tried to forget. And now, because we're talking about this, a horrible memory is flashing back before your eyes, maybe flashing like a neon sign, just as bright and painful as can be. One of the reasons you avoid thinking about this is because forgiveness is so difficult. Forgiving those who've really hurt us is really hard. So before we deal with the forgiveness directly, I want to make sure that we establish what forgiveness isn't. And this requires first demolishing a whole set of misperceptions about what forgiveness actually is. My experience with people is that we tend to have all kinds of false guilt when we try to forgive or when it comes to this issue. We burden ourselves with stuff that shouldn't be there. Many people who are struggling with forgiving someone have an incorrect concept of what they actually need to do to forgive. It's hard enough to successfully forgive someone who's hurt us, right? That's hard no matter what. It's hard enough to do that. Um, and that's when we understand forgiveness correctly. 
But if we have misperceptions about forgiveness, it makes it even more difficult than it already is. But tonight, we're going to find that the story of Jacob and Esau is really helpful here because it shows us what forgiveness isn't. So let's pick back up after Jacob had stolen the blessing. And I'm assuming you already watched last week. And if you haven't, you may want to, you should watch that before you watch this one. Um, because the Jacob and Esau uh, foundation really gets set. We extensively read through the story, several chapters we actually read through. Um, so we're picking back up. Jacob has stolen the blessing. Esau has been told by Isaac that the blessing is gone. So let's look again at the depth of the pain that Esau experienced. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 27, Genesis chapter 27 to verses we saw last week. And so we'll just do a smattering of them, but to reset uh, this and you're going to see uh, the forgiveness facts that come out of here are really, really helpful to all of us, I believe. Look at verse 30, chapter 27. Now it came about as soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob and Jacob had hardly gone out from the presence of Isaac, his father, that Esau, his brother, came in from his hunting. Then he also had made a savory food and brought it to his father. And he said to his father, let my father arise and eat of his son's game that you may bless me. And Isaac, his father, said to him, Who are you? And he said, I am your son, your firstborn Esau. Then Isaac trembled violently and said, Who was he then that hunted the game and brought it to me so that I ate of all of it before you came and blessed him? Yes, he shall be blessed. Then Esau heard the words of his father and he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry. So here's the wailing that we talked about last week. And he said to the father, bless me, even me, oh, my father. Verse 35, and he said, your brother came deceitfully and has taken away your blessing. And then verse 38, the pain again. And Esau said to his father, do you have only one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also, oh, my father. So Esau lifted up his voice and wept. And so now let's uh, take a look at Esau's response to this incredible treachery. Look at verse 41, verse 41. So Esau bore a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are near. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. So you ready? Here's Esau's response. Write it in. He's homicidal. Esau is homicidal. He fully intends to kill Jacob for his treachery. Now, we won't go back through the details, but suffice it to say that Rebekah told Jacob to leave home so Esau wouldn't kill him. And after a very long story, unlike Rebekah predicted, we spent time on that last week. After a very long story, Jacob ended up with two wives and a bunch of children and servants. And now it's 14 years later, and Esau has heard where Jacob is, and Esau is headed his way, and Jacob is appropriately terrified. And yet, in a surprising turn of events, something completely unexpected happens. He, uh, um, he, it's just really, really remarkable, right? And we, we spent, uh, turn, turn to chapter uh, 33 with me, the start of, verse, uh, of chapter 33, the first verse. And um, this is really, really striking, really surprising. Look at verse one. Then Jacob lifted his eyes up and looked and behold, Esau was coming and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two maids. And he put the maids and their children in front and Leah and her children next and Rachel and Jacob la Joseph last. But notice his change of mind, really. 
He himself passed ahead of them and bowed down to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. Verse 4, here's the amazing reconciliation. Then Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. Verse 4 is one of the most surprising verses in all of Scripture. Jacob has stolen Esau's birthright and his family blessing. Jacob was deceitful and treacherous and selfish and conniving. He had completely hosed Esau. He had ruined his life. And back in chapter 27, the last time the brothers were together, Esau was absolutely bent on killing Jacob. He hated him and he wanted to make sure that he paid. But somehow, through these 14 years, something had happened inside of Esau. Here it is. It's the big surprise. Write it in. It's in your notes. The big surprise. Esau had forgiven Jacob. And now, from this story, we're going to find out that it doesn't just tell us about what forgiveness is. This story also reveals what forgiveness isn't. Let's go through the passage and unpack the forgiveness facts. We're going to deal with six forgiveness facts tonight. Forgiveness facts number one. Ready? Uh, here we go. It's in your blanks. Esau forgave Jacob, but he didn't forget what happened. Forgiveness fact number one, Esau forgave Jacob, but he didn't forget what happened. We read this um, story last week, but tonight I'll just uh, delve, delve into it so that we can really pick up on this part of the implications. Look back in chapter 27 at verse 42 with me. Almost the last paragraph. 27 verse 42. Now when the words of her elder son Esau were reported to Rebekah, reported basically he said he's going to kill him, uh, reported to Rebekah, she sent uh, and called her younger son Jacob and said, Behold, your brother Esau is consoling himself concerning you by planning to kill you. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice and arise and flee to Haran, to my <clears throat> brother Laban, and stay there a few days until your brother's fury subsides, until your brother's anger against you subsides, and he forgets what you did to him. So Rebecca figured that Esau would get over this in a few days. She thought that he'd forget about it. But days turned into weeks and weeks turned into months. Months turned into years. And here they are years later and she never called Jacob to come back because Esau's fury didn't subside, at least while Rebecca was alive. So guess what? Esau didn't forget. One of the most puzzling concepts surrounding forgiveness is the ridiculous idea of, you've heard it many times, forgive and forget. Forgive and forget. The simple fact is, you can't forget. When an event shapes a person's life, they remember it as long as they live. The idea that forgiveness will cause a person to forget a devastating memory is simply absurd. In fact, truly forgetting a traumatic event is called repression. This is important. Truly forgetting a traumatic event is called repression, not suppression, not, hey, I'm just trying to get this out of my mind. No, this is repression. It's actually truly forgetting 
a very uh, calamitous event in a person's life. And this is actually a form of mental illness. That's right, truly forgetting isn't healthy, it's actually pathological. Repression isn't normal. It doesn't help a person heal. In fact, repression almost always leads to emotional, mental, or physical problems. Literally, the person may not, won't be lashing out at what happened because they don't remember that, but it expresses itself in some other pathological way. Repression of the memory of a major life event is actually harmful. So this gives us some key concepts. Here's your blanks. Key concept number one. Forgiveness isn't denying that something happened. Forgiveness isn't denying that something happened. Key concept number two. Forgiveness isn't blindness about betrayal. Got it? It's not denying that something happened, and it's not blindness about betrayal. And this leads to what will be a big surprise to some people. It's the forgiveness paradox. This is really striking, but it exudes from Scripture. You ready? Here it is. You can't really forgive unless you remember how much they hurt you. You can't really forgive unless you remember how much they hurt you. Think about it this way. If you don't really actually recall being wronged, then you don't have anything to forgive. There's nothing to forgive if you don't remember what they did. Forgiveness isn't a make-believe game. It's not psychological denial of what happened, and it's not a sentimental trick to deny reality. So don't ever confuse forgiveness with forgiving, forgetting. In the title tonight, for, forgive and forget isn't real. Forgiveness fact number two. Forgiveness fact number two. Here you go. Um, Esau gave Jake, uh, forgave Jacob, but he didn't. <laughs> Let me make sure I got, get this right. I, there's so many of them. He didn't pretend. Ready? Number two. But he didn't pretend that it didn't hurt. Esau forgave Jacob, but he didn't pretend that it didn't hurt. Now look at these verses again. Verse 34. We saw these several times last week and again tonight. So you just see this incredible pain when Esau, verse 34, heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry. He said, bless me, even me, O my father. Verse 38, and Esau said to his father, do you have only one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also, O my father. So Esau lifted his voice and wept. So think about how life-altering this event had been. And what this means is that saying, ready? Saying, oh, it was no big deal. Saying that when it's life-altering and it's painful and it's treacherous, saying, oh, it was no big deal, isn't forgiveness. That's not forgiveness. Pain is a big deal. Suffering is a big deal. Breaking trust is a big deal. True forgiveness looks the terrible pain right in the face. It takes what happened very seriously. It doesn't forget it. It takes it very seriously. Many people have the misguided notion that to forgive someone, you basically have to sweep what happened under the rug, ignore the reality, and pass it off to pretend like it wasn't that big of a deal. But nothing could be further from the truth. In fact, this gives us another key concept. Here's your blank. Write it in. Key, key concept. 
True forgiveness, true forgiveness requires severe truthfulness. Sounds like an oxymoron, doesn't it? Severe truthfulness. But true forgiveness requires severe truthfulness. That's right. Without brutal honesty, no one can really forgive. Passing off a betrayal or a breach of trust as if it was no big deal isn't forgiveness. You ready? What it actually is, is it's a lie because it was a big deal. Forgiveness fact number three. Forgiveness fact number three. Esau forgave Jacob, but he didn't approve. He didn't approve of what he did. Think about that. Esau forgave Jacob, but he didn't approve of what he did. True forgiveness doesn't tolerate what happened. It doesn't excuse what happened. It doesn't justify what happened. In fact, forgiveness isn't needed unless something evil was done. You got that? Forgiveness isn't needed if something evil wasn't done. If something was a random accident, it doesn't need forgiveness. If something was a totally, totally out of a person's control, they don't need forgiveness. We don't forgive people for being clumsy, for instance. Right? We forgive them for being hurtful. That's requiring an intent, an intent to hurt. They knew it was wrong and they still chose to do it. I don't mean that you don't say after you accidentally hurt somebody, you don't say you're sorry. But that's not the kind of thing that when you intentionally hurt someone, that's where you really need forgiveness. Clumsiness doesn't need forgiveness. <laughs> but hurtfulness does. This is one of the ridiculous concepts of our day. The idea that you have to approve of what someone does in order to love them. You see that everywhere now. That if you don't approve and celebrate everyone else's sin, that somehow you don't love them. Couldn't be further from the truth. In fact, on the contrary, to really love somebody, you have to love them as they really are. But loving them never means that you approve of their sin or of any of their hurtful choices. What Jacob did was sinful. It was evil. It was wrong. And nothing, including forgiveness, note this, nothing including forgiveness would change the reality that it was evil. It doesn't take away what happened. Forgiveness never makes something wrong, takes something wrong and turns it or makes it right. And this gives us another key concept. Here's your blanks. Forgiveness removes the power of the wrong, even though the fact that the sin committed can never be undone. Notice that again. Forgiveness removes the power of the wrong, even though the fact that the sin was committed can never be undone. Forgiveness, fact number four. Ready? Number four. Esau forgave, Esau forgave Jacob, but he didn't pardon. He didn't pardon him. Important difference. Let me explain what I mean. Pardoning is a, a fundamentally legal concept. And here's precept number one related to this. Here's your blanks. Forgiveness doesn't surrender the need for justice. This is really important. Forgiveness doesn't surrender the need 
for justice. Forgiving doesn't mean that we ignore appropriate recompense for what happened. In fact, think about it this way. A person can completely forgive someone for a criminal act against them and still testify openly and honestly in a court of law about what they suffered. Their testimony may even be the key testimony that leads to a conviction and punishment. They can do that having completely forgiven the person. So forgiveness doesn't mean that you remain silent when it's time for justice. Most of the time, justice must be served even when the victim completely forgives the wrongdoer. So if forgiveness doesn't mean surrendering the need for justice, what does it mean? This is important. Justice is different than vengeance, and that leads us to precept number two. Here's your blank. To truly forgive, oh, this is tough. To truly forgive, you must surrender your desire for revenge. To truly forgive, you must surrender your desire for revenge. Now, notice something here. This is key. This may seem impossible. After all, who can control their desires. Look, look at the precept again. To truly forgive, you must surrender your desire for revenge. How in the world can this happen? Well, let me add an important key concept. It's your next blanks. Ready? Write it in. We cannot control our desires, but we are able to surrender them to the Lord. We cannot control our desires, but we are able to surrender them to the Lord. Here's what we're able to do. We're able to say, I put this, I put this prayer, if you will, uh, in for you uh, in your notes here so you can see it together. I think it's, it's what I have needed to do sometimes. Lord, I can't forgive them by myself. It's just being honest about that. I can't forgive them by myself. With all the pain they inflicted on me, I don't want to forgive them, right? He already knows that, so just be honest but I'm willing to have you change my heart. I'm willing to have you change my desires. As you give me the grace to forgive, I'm willing to say no to hurting them back. Forgiveness fact number five. Forgiveness fact number five. Ready? Jacob forgave, uh, Esau forgave Jacob, but he didn't have to let me make sure I get this right again. He didn't have to reconcile didn't have to reconcile the relationship. Jacob uh, Esau forgot, forgave Jacob, but he didn't have to reconcile the relationship. This is another really important concept that comes out of the Esau story. But it's not obvious because think about it. Esau and Jacob did reconcile. But look at this. Really important. It's obvious from this 14 year later story that Esau had already forgiven Jacob before the reconciliation. His forgiveness was already accomplished and real even if they had never seen each other before, even if they had never reconciled, it's obvious that Esau, the way, he, 
the way he says, no, brother, you don't have to give me that. And, and Jacob, fortunately, repent, being penitent and understanding that, that sin is costly, he, he says, no, no, I have to give this to you. I want to give you the first place back. I want to give you the birthright back. I want to give you the blessing back. But it's obvious that in Esau's response, he had already forgiven. And, and here we get into the one of the greatest areas of false guilt about forgiveness. See, forgiveness can happen in any situation, no matter what the circumstances were. But there are lots of situations where reconciliation is impossible. For instance, what if the person you need to forgive has died? Or what if you were once married to the person who you need to forgive, and now either you or they have married someone else? Reestablishing a close relationship is now inappropriate. It's no longer possible to have reconciliation in the sense of being back together as in a close friendship. That's just not appropriate anymore. Or what if the person who hurt you doesn't want to be reconciled? You want to reconcile and you're willing to forgive, but what if they don't want to be reconciled? Does that mean that you will never be able to forgive them? Absolutely not. And now I hope to release some of you from a bondage that may have dogged you for years. Forgiving is difficult enough, right? Real forgiving for real evil is difficult enough. It becomes a nightmare when we make it harder than it already is. And ironically, it may be worse since you're part of a Christian community. Now, let me explain that. We all know that we're commanded to forgive. For a follower of Christ, forgiveness isn't an option. But here's where confusing forgiveness with reconciliation creates a huge misunderstanding. True forgiveness must occur without any strings attached. When we forgive, just like Christ did with us, absolute grace, completely undeserved, forgiveness must occur without any strings attached. It must occur whether the betrayer ever repents or not, whether they show remorse or not, and rather whether they make restitution or not for what they did. Forgiveness must occur even if they smugly pretend that nothing ever happened, even if it appears that their life is great and yours is now a disaster, and even if they've never paid for what they did. But this doesn't mean that reconciliation will necessarily occur. And this gives us a key concept number one. Here you go. Here's your blank. Forgiveness must have no strings attached. But reconciliation has lots of strings attached. Let me explain this. Author Lewis Smedes, a Christian psychologist, really brilliant writer, writes about a, a devout follower of Christ who was being urged to forgive her former husband after 10 years of physical violence against her. The elders of her church were pushing her to reconcile with him and take him back. Here's how the dialogue went. This comes right out of his book. Ready? Here's the elders. The elders are saying, as a Christian woman, you have a duty to forgive him. That is true, but they're completely misguided, as we'll see. Notice her response, but I cannot forgive him, not yet, maybe, never. And now they really clarify why, by, what they mean by forgiveness. Okay, ready? They say, here come the elders. But it's your duty to take him back. Listen to her response, a brilliant response. Is it my duty to be beaten? If that's forgiveness, then you keep it. So the author, Smeeds, goes on to explain just how wrong the elders were on this. Listen to his, 
his really great insights. The woman knew that when the elders told her that it was her duty to forgive her husband, what they really meant was that it was her duty to let him come back to live with her. And when she said she couldn't forgive him, what she really meant was that she couldn't live with him. And Smeeds continues, by turning, really insightful, look at this, by turning forgiving into an obligation to go back to the same abuse, listen to that again. By turning forgiving into an obligation to go back to the same abuse, she, robbed, she was robbed of a chance to heal the wounds that still scarred her memory. Even if she completely forgave him, it was perfectly reasonable to assume that he would still be a wife beater. Let me say that again. <clears throat> Brilliantly written. It was perfectly reasonable to assume that he would still be a wife beater, even if she completely forgave him. Being forgiven doesn't qualify a person to be a friend, a partner, or a husband. He concludes, this is Smeeds again, the surest way to convince people not to forgive is to tell them that if they forgive, they must go back to the person who wounded them. So let me give my <clears throat> professional experience <clears throat> of this after 25 years of practicing emergency medicine. I've taken care of abused women many, many times. I've also cared for many abused children where one parent knew what the other was doing most of the time, not always, but most of the time it was the father being abusive to the children and the mother knew it. And I, I'm amazed at the number of well-meaning friends and family who would tell them they should stay in this abusive relationship. So what I'm going to say may seem strange in the setting of thursology, biblical teaching, um, where many, most, maybe nearly all of the people watching are godly people who follow Christ. And, and here's why. Because domestic abuse is much more common in the church than many people would be willing to imagine. So listen, if you or your children are being abused by your spouse, get out and call the authorities. And let me point something out. Telling you to call the authorities isn't just for you and your children. This is also the best thing you can do for the abuser to expose their evil. Calling them to account isn't only what you need most, it's what the abuser needs most. Maybe it will be their chance to actually return to the Lord. And now I want to say two things to those who have left an abusive relationship in the past. Number one, be sure you must allow Christ to help you forgive your abuser. And there's no question that because Jesus has forgiven us so much, an expression of our understanding his grace is finally coming to the point where we allow him to give us the grace to forgive others. But number two, that doesn't mean the fact that you must forgive doesn't mean that you have to return to the relationship. And this leads to key concept number two. Here's your blank. Forgiveness isn't a requirement to return to harm's way. Forgiveness isn't a requirement to return to harm's way. Even if the abuser does repent and submit themselves to the process of dealing with their anger and being delivered from their rage by the work of the Holy Spirit, you still may never come to the point where you feel it's safe to return to the relationship. So don't be pressured into thinking what forgiveness, that forgiveness and reconciliation are the same thing. You must forgive them, 
no matter what. But there may be a whole host of requirements for reconciliation to occur. And then finally, forgiveness fact number six. This is a really, really helpful to some people who have just been encumbered by this. Esau forgave Jacob, but you ready? He didn't have to trust. Trust him. Esau forgave Jacob, but he didn't have to trust him. Listen, trust is the basis for all close relationships. But there's a problem. Trust is a fragile thing. To break trust is an assault on the very fabric of human life. It can take years to rebuild trust. It can take a lifetime. In fact, it may never happen. When the offended truly forgives the offender, they release their demand for revenge. But it's a misunderstanding to think that the person who has forgiven will necessarily trust the one who hurt them. There can be absolute forgiveness, but that doesn't mean necessarily that they will trust the one whom they've forgiven. Many wounded people believe that they haven't really forgiven until they're willing to be vulnerable again to the one who hurt them. The reality is when someone deeply wounds you, the trust may never come back. This is one of the reasons why adultery is such a disaster. Think of all the possible sexual sins. Have you ever noticed all the sexual sins that God could have put in the Ten Commandments? Which one did he choose? Only one. Only one. Adultery. Why adultery? Because it's not just sexual sin. It's violently breaking a trust that has been pledged for a lifetime. Adultery is fundamentally about breaking trust. And I'm not just talking about the physical act of adultery. Jesus' definition of adultery clearly includes pornography as committing adultery in your heart. And tragically, pornographic adultery is widespread in the church. So is Jesus capable of restoring relationships even after the disaster of adultery? Even after perhaps a wife catches her husband using pornography? Uh, is it possible that, um, that that can be restored? Absolutely, of course it is. He's done it through the ages. The Lord has done it many times. But for it to happen, let me tell you, to happen really restoring that relationship requires an incredible miracle. So let me talk to those who have experienced the tragedy of adultery, whether physical adultery or otherwise. Do you have to forgive? Yes. But does that mean you must trust them? The answer is, it depends. The questions related to this can be exceptionally complicated. So if you have experienced this kind of betrayal, I recommend in the strongest of terms that you get help from a really trustworthy, wise, biblically solid source of counsel, either professional or pastoral. And now I want to talk to those who have been the betrayer. It might have been physical or verbal or emotional abuse or adultery or pornography. It could have been any of those. Or, or perhaps it was something less grievous than that. But you still broke trust in your relationship. You might even be doing all that you can to try to make things right. Does the person who you betrayed have to truly forgive you? Yes. 
right? The one whom you betrayed, it's their responsibility to forgive you if they're a believer. But let me make something really clear. You as the betrayer forfeited your right to expect them to trust you when you betrayed them. So you might ask, will I have to pay for my betrayal for the rest of my life? You ready for the answer? Maybe. But you may say, why? Why would I have to pay for that for the rest of my life? And the answer is because forgiveness isn't the same as trust. What you did wounded them deeply. And this is really important. You may feel that you've completely repented of your betrayal. But the very fact that you have demands for them to trust you again means that you still haven't come to grips with how profoundly you hurt them. If you've even, you're even inferring that they owe you their trust now that you have repented, it means that you're still not horrified enough at your sin against them. Even hinting that any of the problem is now theirs shows that you're still blind to the fact of how devastating your sin was. So, is there any hope for the possibility that they might trust you again someday? Well, there's no guarantee but if you do two things, it becomes possible. So again, I'm talking to the betrayers who have repented completely and you believe that, they've, that they have forgiven you maybe even completely, but I'm telling you there is no guarantee that they will trust you again because of what you did. So here's how to make it possible. Two things, ready? The two things that make it possible to trust again. Number one, here's your blank. You must completely accept all of the implications of what you did. You must completely accept all of the implications of what you did. That means real repentance. That means diligently committing to the spiritual disciplines and building all the proper boundaries to help prevent a recurrence. You might have to throw out your computer and never use one again. And you is that costly in today's world? Absolutely. How costly? It's not nearly as costly as what you did to them. And you'll need to be in an accountability relationship for the rest of your life. Is that a high price? Yes, it is. But it's not nearly as high a price as they paid. And number two, the two things that you might, ma uh, might make trust possible again. Number two, you must completely release the one you hurt from any expectations. You must completely release the one you hurt from any expectations. You must apply no pressure no manipulation, no cajoling, no pushing, no laying guilt on them. You have to grant them complete freedom to trust you again at their own pace. If you do these two things, there's no guarantee that you'll be trusted again. But you'll uh, be open now to the possibility of it happening. But for this miracle to happen, you must completely divest yourself of any rights. <laughs> But if you do, there may come a day when the person will voluntarily and freely say to you again, I love you and I trust you. So as we finish tonight's session, I want to emphasize several things. First, since adultery is one of the examples that I've taught on, I want to close the loop on some things. It's important that you not misunderstand what I've said tonight. I'm not even inferring that divorce or marital separation should be easy. The scripture clearly announces repeatedly for all eternity that God hates divorce. Much divorce today happens nearly at the drop of a hat. The list of things that qualify as 
irreconcilable differences has grown to be a mile long. So I'm not talking about extreme cases here. Uh, but I, if you have been deeply wounded and betrayed, I don't, don't confuse forgiveness with reconciliation or trust. And second, tonight, I've emphasized physical abuse and adultery and pornography. But there may be many watching who've been betrayed in other ways. Perhaps like Jacob and Esau, you had parents who loved your sibling more than you. That is really hard to forgive parents of. It's hard. That is just, it should never happen. But maybe that happened to you. Maybe someone lied to you and ruined your reputation, about you and ruined your reputation. Or perhaps you were betrayed at work and it meant that you lost your job or you missed a promotion. Maybe you were molested as a child or a teenager or perhaps a business partner, partner stole your company from you. Or maybe someone at school lied about you and you've been humiliated. Perhaps one of your parents never really gave you the blessing. You've just never been good enough for them. Or maybe a family member misused you all your life. Maybe someone ripped you off. Perhaps someone has said horrible things about you on social media. There are all kinds of ways that people can hurt each other. And every one of them creates the need to forgive. But we've learned tonight that these situations can also create, create false guilt. Perhaps you thought that to truly forgive, you also had to forget what happened or to pretend that it didn't hurt or to approve of what they did or to pardon them or to excuse them or to minimize how evil it was or that you have to reconcile or you have to return to the relationship. Or perhaps you thought to truly forgive them, you have to trust them. This evening, we've seen that, it's what, that forgiveness isn't supposed to be easy, and it's not easy. True forgiveness may be the hardest thing you ever do. In fact, true forgiveness is so hard that it's impossible to do without God's grace. But tonight, hopefully, I've helped clear some people's false guilt up about what forgiveness isn't, what you don't have to do. But this evening is putting you in a position to get rid of the wrong ideas about forgiveness so that real forgiveness, not false forgiveness or ridiculous forgiveness can happen in your life. Will there come a point where it'll take a miracle of God's work for you to not want revenge anymore? Absolutely. But God can transform that into an actual love of the one who made them your enemy. So I'm sure that many of us watching have people that you know that you need to forgive. For some, I hope tonight has been a relief and relieved you from a host of impossibly absurd things that you thought you had to do to forgive. And so I hope this will put some of you in the position to take a step in the right direction. Maybe just to start the process of forgiveness. Now that you realize at the other end of that, it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to have to do all of these things that we've looked at in the forgiveness facts. It just literally means coming to the point where you allow the Lord to transform your heart so your hatred, or bitterness or, or can, can be gone. Um, perhaps you might be open to that, possi that possibility. And I'm praying that some of you who've listened to this session are now ready to try to begin the journey of forgiveness. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the clarity of your word. We thank you, Lord, that even though you demand 
that for us to show that we understand how much you forgave us by your grace, when we were completely undeserving, that our willingness to come to the point where you can do the miracle of forgiveness in us for the person who has hurt us, for that to occur, Lord, we realize that we have to be open to doing what seems impossible. But thank you, Lord, also, that we don't have to do these things that sometimes, Lord, the church is even inadvertently or inappropriately or in error has put upon people. Lord, may we just have the simplicity of your word calling us to grace and forgiveness. And I pray that as we prepare for next week, that we will be willing to able and able to hear how we might actually forgive. We love you, Lord, and we ask your spirit to do this miracle in us. Amen. Next week, think about where we've been. Last week, we dealt with Jacob's need to genuinely ask forgiveness from God and from Esau. Tonight, we dealt with what forgiveness isn't. All of the things, the false things that have gotten overlaid on forgiveness that you don't necessarily have to do to truly forgive. And so now, for next week, we're ready to deal with what forgiveness actually is. And I hope that many of us might be ready to work through that process. In the next session, we'll see the biblical precepts that show us how to truly experience the miracle of forgiveness, even if we've been the victim of horrible things. And I hope that we'll be able to answer the question, this question, how can God help me to forgive someone who doesn't deserve forgiveness?